Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. How much do debate performances matter? We're about to find out. The lead starts right now. The day after that heated debate in Pennsylvania, how John Fetterman struggles after a stroke or going over with voters, plus the brand new ad attacking Mehmet Oz and his awkward answer on abortion rights. And they got him therapy, tried to take his gun, but still, it was not enough. A family's actions before a gunman's rampage in a school with a rifle and 600 rounds of ammunition. Plus, New protests in Iran mark 40 days since a woman died in police custody accused of violating the country's dress code. Could this be the start of a revolution? Welcome to The Lead. I'm John Berman in for Jake Tapper. We'll get to the follow-up from that Pennsylvania debate in just a moment. But first, a bombshell new report in our politics lead. A second woman has come forward claiming that Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker of Georgia pressured her to get an abortion. The woman is not revealing her identity out of fear of reprisal, she says. Her attorney, Gloria Allred, helped lay out her claims at a press conference a short time ago. CNN's Eva McKen is live in Atlanta for us. Eva, what else are we learning here? Yeah, John, we're getting uh, incredible detail from this woman who says that she wishes to remain anonymous. Uh, essentially, she says she had a years-long relationship with Herschel Walker uh, dating back to the 1980s. But it was in 1993, shortly before the end of their relationship, when she said that he personally ensured that she get an abortion. And this happened, according to her, in the state of Texas. Uh, that she learned she was uh, pregnant. He drove her to the abortion clinic and uh, ensured that she get an abortion. She uh, initially went uh, without him um, and did not go through with the abortion. She told him uh, this, that she was not comfortable with it. Uh, Then Walker, the next day, uh, took her to the abortion clinic and ensured she had the abortion, took her to receive medication uh, soon after that. She then uh, left Texas soon after, uh, saying that she was so traumatized. Uh, She says that she has seen uh, Walker deny the allegations from the other accuser, and specifically that he never signs his letters um, with the letter H. Uh, She says that he, in fact, um, sent her letters with the letter H. Uh, But ultimately, she argues that Walker is not morally fit to serve in the United States Senate. Uh, She also says that this is not uh, politically motivated, uh, saying that she is a registered independent and voted for former President Donald Trump twice, uh, but feels, uh, I think, so motivated to come forward uh, due to seeing uh, Walker take this hardline anti-abortion position, but says that in her in his personal life, he took a very different position. John. Eva, has Walker responded to these new allegations? Yeah, so a short time ago, Walker wrapped up a rally in Dillard, uh, 
Georgia. And he again uh, called these accusations a lie, like he has past accusations. He dismissed it, uh, sort of uh, making a joke, saying, um, I didn't kill JFK either. Shortly after that, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, stumping with Walker, said that these allegations are akin to the one used against uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh uh, when he was shortly before Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court. So Walker uh, strenuously denying this. John. All right, Eva McKen for us in Atlanta. Eva, please keep us posted. Just 13 days to go now until Election Day. Nearly 12 million Americans have already cast their ballots. Candidates on the campaign trail eager to earn your votes. And if you live in a state with a critical senator or governor's race, good luck trying to watch TV. Candidates and political groups plan to spend tens of millions on ads over the next two weeks. A brand new spot in Pennsylvania features one-liners from last night's contentious Senate debate between Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Mehmet Oz. Some voters tell CNN the face-off was hard to watch. The sometimes halting performance from Fetterman showed that he is still recovering from a near-fatal stroke earlier this year. As CNN's Jeff Zellinger reports, the debate also gave voters a mostly clear look at where their candidates stand on critical issues like abortion and energy policy. The spotlight on Pennsylvania intensified a day after a debate between John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz sharpened the stakes in the battle for control of the Senate. I had a stroke. He's never let me forget that. The question is not what Oz thinks of his rival. Obviously, I wasn't clear enough for you to understand this. But whether voters believe Fetterman has sufficiently recovered from a near deadly stroke in May and should be elected to a six-year term in Washington. I don't think he has recovered from the stroke. Jan Welsh was watching the debate closely Tuesday night and said she found Fetterman's performance embarrassing. I had questions about Oz earlier, but after listening with him against Fetterman, it's definitely Oz. But Craig Bischoff said he was turned off by what he saw as Oz picking on Fetterman. Do you think that he's, uh, he's healthy enough to be a U.S.? Oh, my, yeah. He gets healthier every day. He's come a long way. The stroke's a hard thing to get over. In one of the nation's tightest Senate contests, stark differences in style and substance may well reverberate for the final 13 days of the race, with crime, energy, and abortion rights among the issues at the center of a bitter duel. I want women, doctors, local political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. Today, his advisors told CNN... Oz believes the federal government should not play a role in abortion policy in the wake of the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade. Pennsylvania deserves better than Fetterman. At a campaign stop, Oz talked about crime, not abortion, and did not address his line about local political leaders, which Fetterman immediately seized upon in a new ad. Local political leaders. Oz would let politicians like Doug Mastriano ban abortion without exceptions, even in cases of rape, incest, or life of the mother. As Democrats try linking Oz to Doug Mastriano, the Republican candidate for governor. But it was Fetterman's own shaky performance. My doctors, the real doctors that I believe in, they all believe that I'm ready to be served. It dominated the post-debate discussion, stirring alarm among Democratic leaders from Pennsylvania to Washington, where the party's slim hold on the Senate is at risk. With the help of closed captioning to accommodate for lingering effects of his stroke, Fetterman not only struggled to prosecute his case against Oz, but also on fracking, a critical source of energy jobs here. In 2018, he said this. I don't support fracking uh, at all, and I never have. And on stage Tuesday night, he struggled to explain how his views have evolved. I do support fracking, and 
I don't, I don't, I support fracking and I stand and I do support fracking. The debate opened a new round of discussion about Fetterman's ability to serve, which is now likely to be a central question in the closing stretch of the race. I think I was expecting it, but not to that degree. Um, he flumbered a lot and it was, it was, it was very painful. Now, Fetterman supporters are lining up here in Pittsburgh to see him campaign here tonight with the Dave Matthews Band. And the Fetterman campaign telling us they've raised $2 million off of the debate. They plan to put it on that abortion ad. But, John, the question in the 13 remaining days of the race, did the debate set the tone? Is there still an opportunity for undecided voters to choose him or for others to change their minds? John? All right, Jeff Zellini for us live in Pittsburgh. Jeff, great to see you. Thank you. I want to bring in Karen Finney for her insights. She was the senior advisor and spokesperson for Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. And Karen, we wanted to talk to someone who's been through tough moments yeah. in campaigns. I'm not really looking for spin about whether it was bad for Fetterman or not. For those who do think it was bad, right, what would you do on the Fetterman campaign now to fix this? Look, I think he's got to spend the next 12 and a half, 13 days talking again, reminding voters again where he stands on critical issues and frankly underscoring something that, as you know, John, I also have personal experience with from my own uh, health situation, which is just because he maybe didn't do great in the debate last night, that doesn't mean he isn't perfectly capable of serving in the Senate. And so he's got to reassure the voters of Pennsylvania that, you know, be, simply because he has some, you know, some issues that require, you know, the closed captioning, that doesn't mean his brain, that his cognition is in any way, shape or form uh, not uh, stellar, as his doctor said, and that it would preclude him from being able to serve and carry out his duties. So you address it head on. Would you make yeah. some kind of a statement on the stage tonight uh, at sure. this rally? Do you do an interview? Sure, you sure can. I mean, you can, I think you can do a couple of things. Number one, but let's also remember, they also, from the debate, and they are doing this very wisely, they got, uh, Oz made a huge gaffe in the comment, which you played in the, in the opening here, about abortion rights. And that is, a, I mean, that is literally one of our talking you know, points here, that we don't want any politicians in the exam room. So they've got to do a couple of things. Number one, they should stay on offense on that point. And I believe that clip has gotten like 5 million views so far. And sure, talk about it tonight in, in, your, in his events. Talk about it in, in all of his events. I mean, the other thing that he said that I thought was really powerful is, you know, sometimes we fall down and we, got, and we get back up. And I have to tell you, I think there are probably a lot of people who respect the fact that he got up there and he did something that was really hard and he was willing to show himself while he is still healing. And again, I think as long as he continues to show that he's absolutely capable of carrying out his duties, take that concern off the table. Um, and part of the way you do that is remind voters the contrast, the difference mm -hmm. between himself and Oz. Karen Finney, thank you for that insight. Appreciate it. Thanks. Let's discuss now with our panel, John Avalon, CNN senior political analyst. What do you think of what Karen said there? What she said at the beginning was address it. Talk about it. You can't hide from it. Um, it's out there. And look, th th that was the, the risk and the virtue of that debate. Um, a lot of candidates hide from debates. John Fetterman didn't. But it was a hard debate to watch. He is far from being the candidate he was before his stroke. And, and so he's got to own it, which he effectively did last night. It, I don't think that debate helped him, but it was transparent, mm -hmm. 
to the voters, and that itself is important. There's no running away from this. you got to lean into it and say, look, the man I was before my stroke, I will be again once I heal. And then trust that the voters believe that and see that and understand that. Yeah, I think that's right. I think he's also done long-form interviews that journalists, if you look at Kara Swisher's podcast for an hour, he sat down and talked to her. She's a, she had suffered from a stroke, so she has some views about it as well. This all needs to be out there for Pennsylvania voters to decide. There is no constitutional health requirement to be a U.S. senator. The only requirement is that the voters think that you're fit for office and enough of them vote for you. I mean, it's out there. People saw it. And oh, his, yeah. his performance was worse than it was in the interviews, either with Kara Swisher or with NBC. Some of the things that Democrats are saying is, oh, not that many people watch the debates live. I've heard that. I had one Democratic <laughs> strategist from Pennsylvania tell me, by tomorrow night when the World Series starts, no one's <laughs> going to be talking about this. Mm-hmm. Wishful thinking, Mara? I think it's wishful mm-hmm. thinking. I mean, you mentioned other interviews that he's done, which that's a completely valid point. But then the question is how widely heard or seen were those other interviews compared to this debate? And I think the problem with the debate is that it just raised too many questions. So to Karen's point, is this an issue of, of comprehension or was this an issue of verbal recall? You know, the Democrats would like to say, no, this was just about verbalization. But there are a lot of people who are now saying, well, does this speak to his ability to, to perform the duties now, but also... How honest has his his campaign been up to this point? And those are questions that a lot of voters have to be grappling with right now. I'll be very curious to see if he comes right out on that stage at this this rally where Jeff Zelendy is right now and talks about it. Karen Finney says maybe she should. Um, Look, I want to talk about what Karen also brought up, which was abortion, what Mehmet Oz said about abortion, that the decision should be between, quote, a woman, her doctor and local political leaders. Democrats have already put out an ad on this. Let's watch. Local uh, political leaders, local uh, political leaders, local uh, political leaders. Oz would let politicians like Doug Mastriano ban abortion without exceptions. Oz is too extreme for Pennsylvania. Margaret, how salient is that? Will that break through after Fetterman's debate performance? That's exactly what they need to be doing, because we know that the overturning of Roe v. Wade is the single most mobilizing issue for Democrats. And this is going to be a numbers game in Pennsylvania. It's going to be, can you get more Democrats to the polls to vote for Fetterman than you can Republicans and independents to vote for Oz? It's all numbers, and that ad catalyzes votes. All right, let's talk about another key Senate race, which Mm. is Georgia. We heard Eva McKen, the report... Gloria Allred's got a client, an anonymous client coming forward saying that Herschel Walker, you know, also drove her to get an abortion. John, the impact of now a second story here. Walker denies it, I should say. Walker denies it. Look, it's doubling down on what is already one of many of Walker's weaknesses, but a real core contradiction for his evangelical supporters. Um, You know, it's late in, in, in the election for another woman to come forward. But it just makes it more difficult, I would imagine, for many evangelicals to say, you know what, I will accept this. Now, look, the argument they make is person, it's party over the person. And, and he's flawed, but he'll vote for Mitch McConnell. And we'll see how tenable that is if there's this kind of pattern of hypocrisy. Yeah, I do think that it's ultimately going to come down to that. And with swing voters, I think it could have, you know, some impact. But there are a lot of people who are just strictly voting on party lines because they know that the balance of the Senate mm-hmm. hangs in their vote. And so this is not necessarily a new revelation because we've heard from so many other women. And part of the appeal for Walker in that space was that he was such a superhero that they thought he was going to be a draw and that people could overlook some of of the issues there. The mo- in the most crass political terms, though, are two claims 
any different politically than one claim. Yes, two claims are worse yeah. than one. One, you can always sort of leave a question mark out there when there's two. It's way more lethal. By mm-hmm. the way, it's not just independence and it's not just straight party lines. I mean, a lot of the reason Joe Biden ended up winning Georgia is because conservative Republican-leaning men mm-hmm. actually ended up going to the polls and voting for Joe Biden, not for Donald Trump. So there's all sorts of people who may just not show up. Let's go for three Senate okay. races now, if we can. Let's go to Arizona. Oh. Blake Masters, the Trump-endorsed candidate for Senate... I guess Fox was doing a documentary, shooting a documentary, and they captured footage of Donald Trump calling Blake Masters and telling Masters that he's got to lean more into false claims of election fraud. Listen to this. And if they say, how is your family? She says the election was rigged and stolen. You'll lose if you go soft. You're going to lose that base. I'm not going soft. So what he's saying is Kerry Lake, the, the gubernatorial candidate there, is talking about these fake cancel election fraud, but he's not doing it enough. John, that's a pretty crazy moment. It's insane, and it's incredibly important to hear it in real terms. Look, because this is the shakedown. This is the intimidation game that Donald Trump is playing with candidates. If you do not lie for me, if you do not echo my lies, you will be seen as weak and you will not turn out the base. It's the appeal across someone between a mob boss and a cult leader, that kind of an appeal. And the fact that he fell in line speaks a enormously to the politics right now driving the far right. That's all on tape. Can I just also say, should this just put to bed this notion, whether Donald, this question about whether Donald Trump is running in 2024? (laughs) If he cares about Arizona and how 2022 handles the two key states, Arizona and Pennsylvania, that he's relying Mm -hmm. on next time around, this should just put to bed. The man is clearly running. John, Margaret, Mara, great to see you. Good to see you. All right. We have new reporting this hour from Capitol Hill and House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy reportedly on cleanup duty. What sources say about his blank check to Ukraine comments that's not sitting well with members of his own party. Plus two major interviews, one from a Ukrainian and one from a Russian, both with very different takes on Vladimir Putin's plans. Topping our world lead, quote, we got him back. That moment of relief and a tearful phone call to CNN from the father of 24-year-old Joshua Jones, an American killed this summer while fighting alongside the Ukrainian military in eastern Ukraine. He's one of at least five Americans killed in Ukraine since the start of Putin's war. CNN's Clarissa Ward witnessed the transfer of Jones' body after Ukrainian and Russian officials met in the Zaporizhia region. She'll join Jake Tapper from Ukraine on CNN tonight. That's at 9 o'clock Eastern. Now, overnight in Ukraine, the security service says a Russian missile strike killed two people after it blew up a gas station in central Ukraine. One, a gas station attendant. The other was a pregnant woman burned alive in her car. Further south in Kherson, Russian officials have encouraged more than 70,000 people to leave as both sides prepare, prepare for a fierce frontline battle. I want to bring in CNN's Nick Robertson in Kiev. And Nick, you spoke with Ukraine's chief of defense intelligence. What did he tell you? about Russia accusing Ukraine of of possibly using a dirty bomb. He thinks this is Putin's psychological pressure, not just on Ukraine, but on Ukraine's Western allies to pressure Ukraine into getting into peace talks with Russia. But on his terms, he is rejecting any sense of peace talks until Russia gets wholly out of Ukraine, back to 1991 lines, and rejecting wholly President Putin's allegations that Ukraine is developing a dirty bomb. Це питання 
This is a question that became something of a joke, and my answer is direct. We are not getting prepared. We are not working on a dirty bomb. Ukraine has invited the International Atomic Energy Agency inspectors to come here. When are they due to arrive? Where will they go? And when do you expect their results? We're absolutely supporting the visit of the IAEA mission, and we are waiting for them. We're waiting for them to visit all nuclear facilities. His assessment is actually that his assessment is actually that Putin doesn't want to take this to a nuclear conflict. This is all posturing on Putin's part. But of course, the question mark in everyone's mind: Does he cross a line? Yeah, look, those are dangerous question marks to have, too. Nick, separate subject. What are Russian officials saying after Brittany Griner's rejected court appeal? Yeah, this was something that was put to Dmitry Peskov, President Putin's spokesman at the Kremlin. He declined to give any comment about that district court's decision uh, not to shorten or change her sentence. He did say, however, that any conversations about Brittany Griner and the possibility of prisoner exchanges is something that needs to be done in secret, silently, not out in the open. Look, there's one thing that Russia really wants here. It wants the war over. It wants it over on its terms. So anything that it can do behind the scenes to leverage to that position, it's going to try to do. This is why they don't want to wash this laundry in public, if you will. It wouldn't be the first time the United States has engaged with Russia in a process uh, about uh, prisoners being held by either side. But this is entirely different. The stakes for Russia are so high right now. Nick Robertson for us in Kiev. Nick, stay safe. Back in the United States, new reporting just into CNN, House Republican Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, we're told, is desperately working behind the scenes to assure national security leaders that a Republican-controlled House would not abandon Ukraine aid. This after McCarthy told Punchbowl News last week there would be no blank check to the embattled country. CNN's Melanie Zanona is live for us on Capitol Hill. Melanie, so, so what did McCarthy mean? Well, sources tell me that Kevin McCarthy reached out to some defense hawks who were concerned about these comments that were made to Punchbowl News. And he said his comments about Ukraine no longer getting a blank check from a Republican majority were essentially taken out of context. He said it's not that Republicans are going to stop providing a check. It's that they're simply not going to simply give a rubber stamp to whatever the Biden administration requests in terms of Ukraine aid. But just the fact that McCarthy had to soothe these concerns inside his conference really show the fine line that he is walking between the isolationist pro-Trump wing of his party and the more establishment wing of his party. And frankly, his comments reflect a political reality, which is that there is a small but vocal group of isolationists in his party, and they're only going to get louder if they're in the majority. Melanie, how are national security officials planning on working with Republicans if they gain power? So my colleagues Jeremy Erb, Katie Bolillis, and Kylie Atwood were part of this great reporting. And what they found were that GOP defense hawks have already started strategizing over how they're going to work with the isolationist wing of their party and try to convince new and skeptical members to continue letting aid and resources flow to Ukraine. And one way they're going to do that is through an educational campaign. And a key part of that strategy is leaning on Trump-era national security officials, such as former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, to try to make the case to these members. There's also talks about holding hearings on Russian war crimes to remind people what is happening on the ground. Uh, But so far, GOP defense hawks feel like they're, they're going to prevail, but they know that they have their work cut out for them. So that is why you're seeing them start to lay the groundwork now. 
Melanie Zona on Capitol Hill, part of this all-star reporting team, bringing us this news. Thanks very much, Melanie. Thank you. An attorney for former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows plans to appeal a court ruling issued today that would force Meadows to testify to a grand jury in Georgia investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 election results there. The Fulton County, Georgia uh, District Attorney subpoenaed Meadows to learn more about phone calls, meetings and emails he was a part of that pushed unsubstantiated fraud allegations. The DA's office says it has offered several dates in November for Meadows to testify. Next, 40 straight days of protests in Iran. Can their messages really change the ways of a powerful regime trying to crack down? I'm going to speak next with someone who knows the region well. In our world lead, Iranian security forces fired tear gas at protesters gathered to mark 40 days since the death of Masha Amini. She was a 22-year-old Iranian woman who died after being detained by morality police for failing to observe the country's conservative dress code. Her death sparked a wave of protests throughout the country. Today, the U.S. is announcing a slew of new sanctions against Iranian officials for their brutal crackdown on the nationwide demonstrations. And as CNN's Nada Bashir reports, some are calling the demonstrations the beginning, perhaps, of a revolution. The final resting place of Massa Gina Amini. A place of mourning and now of protest. Amini's name has become synonymous with a movement that is posing the biggest threat to the Iranian regime in years. Sparked in the wake of the 22-year-old's death while in the custody of Iran's notorious morality police. Detained for allegedly contravening the country's strict dress code. But now, as the Iranian people commemorate 40 days since Amini's death, a significant marker of both mourning and remembrance, the movement has grown to become something far more wide-reaching than its initial call for women's rights, as more and more protesters take to the streets demanding regime change. Amini's death is now remembered alongside a growing list of women and young girls who have lost their lives at the hands of Iran's security forces. Though authorities deny responsibility, disregarding the mounting evidence of the regime's brutal and deadly crackdown on protesters. We have use of uh, paintball guns, shock guns with, with metal or plastic pellets, and also um, instances of use of assault weapons, assault rifles, uh, clashing of style weapons, or even handguns that have been documented. This in addition to the mass detention of hundreds, if not thousands, of protesters. Six weeks on, however, and the movement isn't losing steam. With protests gripping the country's universities and high schools, and strike action by teachers, business owners, factory workers, even oil refinery workers, the backbone of Iran's economy. The call for reform and for regime change is only growing louder. And look, John, it is remarkable to see these protests continuing despite that widespread crackdown. But human rights groups have raised concerns over the rising death toll reports of mass detention of protesters. The UN now calling for an independent international investigation into the crackdown by the Iranian security forces. But despite that crackdown, these demonstrators are still taken to the streets every single day. John. Nada Bashir, thank you so much for your report.
Want to dig deeper now with CNN Chief International Anchor Christian Amanpour. And Christian, these protests do pose one of the more serious challenges to the Iranian government since the 1979 revolution. Forty days in, they're still going strong. But I want to ask you a, a similar question to what I asked you basically on day one of these demonstrations. Is this a genuine existential threat today to the regime? You know, it's a really hard question to answer. The answer really, according to most analysts, is no. Not for the moment. We don't know how it's going to proceed. And we do know that these are, as we've all been saying, unprecedented um, demonstrations, not just in the duration, but in the demographics of who are taking part in them. It's not just one group of society. It's really across the board. Old, young, men, women, religious, traditional, and more liberal and reform-minded. And, and this is what's really different. And what you have is a regime, as you can see, that is sort of teetering on not quite knowing what to do. Should it actually unleash all the might of the security forces and do a lot more damage and kill a lot more people and injure a lot more people and arrest a lot more people than they already have? Or have they got to try and manage it because they know the regime that in every household, including in the religious households, including in the households of the government, you know, ministers and, and the like, including of the Revolutionary Guard and the Basij, there are young girls and women, mothers, sisters, daughters, who are joined in this struggle. And this struggle is exceptional because even the law enforcement is saying that the average age of those who've been arrested so far are girls of around 15 to 16. I mean, that is a, an incredible statistic. And it's happening in schools. And every day now you see these sort of guerrilla protests, uh, you know, starting up. They're not massive. They're not tens of thousands on one corner. They're not hundreds of thousands, but they're happening in every school where young girls are challenging even government spokesmen who come to try to, you know, calm them down. So it's it's a daily irritant to the regime. And they have a very, you know, strong desire, these women, for change. The women and girls are showing enormous courage, enormous, no doubt about that. I want to turn quickly to Putin's war on Ukraine. The concerns that Russia is looking for a pretext to escalate the conflict and maybe use a nuclear weapon. You spoke to the Russian ambassador to the UK. What did he tell you about this? Well, look, John, it's really difficult to get any official Russian voice to talk about this. We try and we try and we try. So today I did manage to get an interview face to face with the Russian ambassador. And this, of course, comes as the Russians took to the UN yesterday to accuse the Ukrainians, in their words, of trying to plant a dirty bomb. Um, you know, and America said this must be a false flag and they've warned Russia not to use this as a pretext to escalate. So this was part of that conversation. Is Russia trying to escalate this war? First of all, uh, in uh, his conversation, I mean, uh, the Minister of Defense Shoigu, he assured every minister once again that we are not going to use nuclear weapon. And there was no single statement, neither by the president or responsible guys, I do not take journalists, of course, they had, and all these uh, talks on the television. So Russia is not going to use nukes. So it is out of the question. And your president has said that too? Uh, he never mentioned a possibility of no, using. No, but he it. has. You know, there he's, are he's raised veiled and, threats, and it's worried no, everybody. No, uh, there are speculations and allegations and issues that are trying to be, uh, which he has never pronounced. In fact.
So, John, very important what he said. Of course, Russians did say they weren't going to invade, and then they did. But nonetheless, it's very important. And also, he said that the Russians are going to be digging in over the winter. And we know that this is still a, a big issue around Kherson, for instance, that major city, the only one that they have managed to occupy, you know, they, they plan to defend. Christian Amanpour, thank you so much for sharing your reporting with us. Nighttime in London. Appreciate it. Next, there were warning signs and actions taken before that deadly high school shooting in St. Louis. What the teen gunman's family is saying about him after he reportedly claimed in a note he lived an isolated, loner life. The family of the 19-year-old gunman who killed two people and wounded several others this week at his former St. Louis high school the family knew he had acquired a gun and with police help turned the weapon over to another adult before the shooting. That's according to the St. Louis police commissioner who says they're still investigating how the teen got the gun back. The family also told authorities they got mental health treatment for him several times. He was pronounced dead at the scene after a gunfight with authorities. Seen as John Miller is with me now. And John, we always talk about warning signs. I mean, the family stepped in, had the gun taken away. The family got mental health for him, treatment for him. So, so given all this, where was the failure? I mean, the failure is anytime all the signs are there and the event occurs despite that. So we'll call it a failure. But casting blame is really the hard part, John, because families struggle with children with mental illness. Um, they tend to rely on, well, what do the experts say? The police tell them, we'll get the gun out of the house, we'll give it to another relative. Step one. The mental health professionals say, you know, we have evaluated him and don't think he's in immediate danger or he can stay home. We've seen this before in the Buffalo supermarket shooting by a young white supremacist. He had put on his high school goals page to be a mass murderer. State police were called. They questioned him. They turned him over to a mental health facility. 48 hours he was out and went back to his plan. Police recovered the notebook of the shooter. Inside the notebook, uh, the killer wrote that his family didn't know anything about his plans. Still, could, should the family have done more? I think that the family's in a very tough position. But, you know, if you look at uh, Jen Crumley and her husband from the shooting in, school shooting in Michigan, Oxford School, they're in jail serving time because the signs were there. They gave their son access to firearms and not access to mental health treatment. So, this is becoming a real issue. Right now in Uvalde, not on the criminal side, but on the civil side, people are suing the police, the chief of police, and the principal of the school, and the gun manufacturer, um, because it takes a lot of factors to make one of these things happen, and people demand accountability. How much of an issue will it be about how he got the gun back? So that is a bullseye question, which is, if it was given to a relative, let's say an uncle or somebody else, and they said, we're giving you this because we think that, you know, this kid is imbalanced or dangerous, and he gave the gun back knowing that, if that was the gun, um, that could be a criminal problem, not just a civil problem, as we learned from the Crumley case. And John Miller, one of the things you told me is that 80% of the times these mass shooters tell somebody before it all happened, we all need to try to do more when we hear these things. John Miller, thank you very much. A once almost guaranteed vote, now nowhere close. And in 2022, the fight to win over this voting block looks a bit different. We'll show you next. To the western battleground states of Nevada and Arizona now, as CNN's Kyung Law reports, 
polls may show Latino voters there lean towards the Democrats, but Republican candidates are closing the gap. In the battle for the Latino vote in the West, these Las Vegas union workers are the foot soldiers for Nevada's incumbent Democratic governor, Steve Sisolak. We vote, we win. Come on, I can't hear you. How critical is Latino turnout for you? Well, Latino turnout is going to be huge. They are energized. You can tell by the enthusiasm you saw in that room. They're knocking on doors. They're going to keep knocking on doors until we hit November 8th. In recent elections, about one in six Nevada voters were Latino, a pivotal voting bloc in the West. And a group especially hit hard during the pandemic with job losses and now inflation. All while Democrats like Governor Sisolak were in charge. I really appreciate it. Thank you. These canvassers are hearing it. Most right now is the rent. The high prices of cost of living. Please join me in welcoming Blake Masters. That presents an opportunity for Republicans in this year's midterm elections. In Arizona, where Latinos have made up nearly one in five voters in recent elections. Republican Senate nominee Blake Masters is forging into Democratic territory by opening field offices in predominantly Latino neighborhoods. People are sick of this, right? You make energy expensive, you make everything expensive. Masters' economic and social message resonates with voter Cynthia Hernandez. They assume I'm Catholic and a Democrat because I'm brown-skinned and, you know, I'm not a Catholic and I'm not a Democrat. What we've seen in some Republican strategy is that they've been investing over years in trying to reach Latinos. So maybe now they're harvesting what they've sowed. Arturo Vargas with the Naleo Education Fund says, especially in the West, Latinos are a swing voting block. Donald Trump made gains with Latinos in 2020. Protect union labor and your jobs. And in 2022, while polls show Latinos still favor Democrats, Republicans have closed the gap compared to past elections. No estaré su lado. Lucharé contra la agenda progresista. One area where the GOP still lags far behind the Democrats is Spanish language advertising. Democrats are spending more than 10 times as much as Republicans in the Nevada and Arizona Senate races, setting new records, targeting Latino voters. Thank you for being here this morning. And like the entire electorate, Latinos will need to be won over to turn out. My message to Democrats, if you want to earn the Latino vote, you better get out there and hustle. 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 In Nevada, as well as here in the state of Arizona, we are seeing closing messages targeting Latinos. Almost on a daily basis, there is an event focused on Latino turnout. And John, the message always the same, focused on the economy. John? Votes very much in play. Kyung Law, thank you very much. Next, the danger flagged on a product usually bought to keep your home clean and safe. In our money lead, you may have to pour some of it down the drain. Clorox is recalling and asking consumers to dump 37 million bottles of pine saw cleaners. They may contain a potentially harmful bacteria, which has a name nobody but a scientist could pronounce. Here's what you really need to know. If you have original pine-scented pine saw, no problem. 
The recall involves Pine Soul's lines of multi-surface, all-purpose, and professional cleaners. They come in pretty colors and in various scents. Pine Soul has set up a special website where you can apply for a refund. CNN.com has much more information if you need it. So you can follow the show on Twitter at The Lead CNN. I'm John Berman on Twitter. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues right now with Wolf Blitzer in The Situation. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.